All right. We have remembered the story this morning in, in a couple of different ways. And we've talked briefly in communion and importantly about what Jesus' death and resurrection means for us personally, for our sin and for our salvation. But to more fully understand the implications of Easter, to really get the, the full implications of the whole weekend and really of Jesus' entire life and ministry, we have to go back. We have to go back to Friday and just pause there for a couple of minutes before we continue on in the story. Jesus died at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday and the sky went dark and the earth shook at the moment that he died. And there was a crowd gathered around at the foot of the cross watching him, watching what was happening. But you know who wasn't there at the foot of the cross? Christians. There weren't any Christians there that Friday afternoon at the foot of the cross because the church hadn't even begun yet. There was no such thing as a Christian. No Christians, no church, no New Testament that Friday afternoon at the foot of the cross. And the only followers left that day were a handful of Jewish people from the region of Galilee nearby. And their hearts were broken. They were crushed with grief as they saw all of their hopes in Jesus being crucified on that cross. They were completely confused because it was only five days earlier that Jesus had triumphantly entered into Jerusalem as the promised king, the one they had all been waiting for, to people's shouts and proclamations of the long-awaited Messiah sent by God. But then in the, in the last 24 hours before that Friday, they had seen Jesus arrested and tried and beaten and then crucified on the cross as the religious leaders worked with the Roman Empire to make it happen. They were in shock. It was all unexpectedly over. And it was over in the worst possible way. You know, history tells us that the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it as a horrific tool of their empire to squash rebellion. The idea is that the person that they wanted to rub out, to get rid of, to obliterate, they would select them for crucifixion, have them publicly beaten and and whipped to within an inch of their life, and then publicly parade them through the streets, and then publicly nail them onto a cross for everyone to watch as they slowly and horribly died. And, and people would gather around and mock them. This is what was happening. It was like, look at this person who has tried to rebel against the empire. This person who's tried to do the wrong thing. Well, let us, the Romans, the empire, the imperialists, let us show you what happens to people that disagree with us. And then normally, when the person had finally died, the remains would be taken down off the cross and thrown into a rubbish heap for wild animals to eat. Unless you were able to negotiate or or to bribe the Roman governor and so that you could have the remains and give them a proper burial. And so we jump into the story of Good Friday in John chapter 19, just after Jesus had died. And it says in verse 38 that afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus. Why? because he feared the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders. He asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. And when Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him came Nicodemus, 
the man who had come to Jesus at night, another secret follower. And Nicodemus brought about 34 kilograms of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. And following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. And the place of crucifixion was near a garden, and there was a new tomb there that had never been used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This was hurried. It was last minute. It was do this as quick as you can, because as soon as that, that day of preparation began and the Passover began, it was, it was tools down. You weren't allowed to work. You weren't allowed to touch a dead body. So as quickly as they could, they prepared Jesus for burial and found the nearest available tomb and put him in there. While this incredibly heartbreaking stuff is happening, at that very same time, you have the most powerful man in the world, Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor, some 2,300 kilometers away in Rome with no idea what's going on. At the same time, you have a man named Saul of Tarsus, probably that day somewhere in Jerusalem celebrating Passover and celebrating with his friends, the religious leaders, that that troublesome and annoying, blaspheming teacher was finally dead. And you have the disciple Thomas, one of Jesus' closest followers, who ran away in fear when he was arrested. And we have no idea where Thomas is that day or most of the other disciples, not a clue where they're hiding. But we know Peter and James and John are huddled together in Jerusalem trying to figure out what to do and being petrified of the authorities and what might happen to them now that Jesus is dead. And somewhere in town you have women gathered as well, including Jesus' own mother, Mary, and the other Mary, the one we saw on the video, grieving and in shock. These are confused people. These are frightened ex-disciples. These are heartbroken women and a grieving mother. And in this moment, nobody expected or believed that Jesus was the saviour of the world. Not a single person believed that Jesus was the saviour of the world in this moment. He couldn't even save himself He definitely wasn't the long-anticipated king of Israel. And nobody at this point planned to keep the dream alive, to keep the Jesus movement going. Why would they? It was completely over because he was dead. And it was over because we have to remember why the disciples followed him in the first place. And so we need to rewind a little bit to try and understand what was their motivation? What did they say as they began to follow Jesus? And for sure, there were some different, different initial kind of reasons, but there was only one thing that kept them. There was only one reason why they'd stayed with Jesus so long. And it wasn't his teaching. He taught for sure, and he was a very good teacher, but Jesus' teaching was often really impractical and often offensive. You know, Jesus taught people to pay your taxes to a corrupt government. Jesus taught people to pray for your enemies even while they're out to get you. Jesus said, if you even look at someone lustfully, it's the same as committing adultery. He said, if someone hits you, turn and offer them the other cheek as well. 
And Jesus said, forgive no matter what. So it wasn't his teaching that made the disciples follow him. Jesus didn't come to leave his disciples and leave us with some nice pithy stories and some anecdotes and some profound teaching. He didn't ask people to trust his ideas. He didn't ask people to trust his teaching. Jesus asked his followers to follow him and to trust him. So it wasn't his ideas that got him killed. It was who and what he claimed to be. Because Jesus claimed to be Israel's king. He claimed to be Israel's Messiah. He claimed to be greater than Moses and the prophets and the whole entire law of the Old Testament. And one of his most offensive claims, Jesus said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He claimed to be the Son of God. And that's why the disciples had left everything behind. That's why they believed he was who he said he was. Because of who he claimed to be and what he claimed to be. But in the moments after 3 p.m. on that Friday, they were wrong. Or at least they thought they were wrong. Because how in the world could a Messiah die? So when Jesus died, the Jesus movement died with him. And everyone could see that Rome had won. The religious authorities had won. And so the disciples, the followers, even his family run. They unfollow him. They keep their distance, most of them, during the crucifixion. And then they all hide afterwards. Everyone, including his mother, expected him to do what crucified people do. Just to stay dead. And Rome... The empire is relieved. Pilate is a relieved governor. I have made it through another year, another Passover, without losing my job or losing my head. I have quelled the chance of an uprising, of a revolt, and everything is back to normal. Let's fast forward for a minute. 350 years to February the 27th in the year 380, when the Roman emperor is now Theodosius I, and Theodosius issues the Edict of Thessalonica. That's him on the coin, stunning depiction of what he looks like. The Edict of Thessalonica makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, Constantine, Emperor Constantine, in the year 313 had authorized Christianity. He'd become a Christian himself. But it was in 380 when it was legalized, when all of the force of the Roman Empire then came in behind Christianity. And in the Edict of Thessalonica, what Theodosius said is that if you reject Christianity, if you, have, if you reject the faith of the Christians, not only is God's judgment on you, but the whole judgment and power of the Roman Empire is against you. Jesus never even set foot in the city of Rome, and yet only 350 years later, everything changed because of him. And and if you fast forward another 1,673 years from then to today, there is no Roman Empire, and the city of Rome is full of crosses. And they're not crosses to commemorate crucifixion in general. They're crosses to commemorate one crucifixion of Jesus. They're crosses that celebrate hope and salvation and forgiveness and compassion and the love of God. 
And, and today, 2,300 kilometers from Rome is Jerusalem. And, and what do you find every day in Jerusalem? Thousands of Christian tourists who want to walk where Jesus walked. What happened? If all you knew was Friday at 3 p.m., this wouldn't make any sense. A troublesome, annoying spiritual teacher is killed, crucified, and then is declared to be God by the very empire that killed him. And hundreds of millions of people believe that he is God and gather every week to worship him. What happened? Clearly, there's more to the story. And what happened is why we're here today. What happened was seen by people who were living at the time and recorded by them. What happened was investigated by people who were alive at the time but weren't there, but they investigated what had happened. What happened came to be believed by Saul of Tarsus, who celebrated the day Jesus died, who later went on to kill Christians everywhere that he could, but then met Jesus in a vision on a road one day, became the Apostle Paul and wrote most of the New Testament that we still read today. All of these people tell us the same story. They tell us things like John wrote in his gospel in verse 19 of chapter 20, that that Sunday evening, that weekend, the day Jesus rose, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Nobody, literally nobody expected a miracle that day. But the disciples quickly re-engaged with the Jesus movement because of what and who they saw, because something had happened. Jesus is who he said he was. He's everything he claimed to be and more. You know, Jesus said one day, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. There are no categories for that. When you're filling out a form for Centrelink, there's no category of person that is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is outside of the box of anyone's imagination, of anyone who's ever walked the earth. And for the disciples, when they saw him, they knew he'd died. Some of them had watched it happen. But when they saw him alive, all of the dots began to connect. All the things he taught and claimed began to make sense. And the Jesus movement reignited in a moment because he was, in fact, God's final king who came to die for his subjects rather than requiring, requiring his subjects to die for him. He began, came to begin the upside-down kingdom. And now, now they understood and they re-engage with everything he'd said and everything he taught them to do. So the resurrection of Jesus, Easter Sunday, is not a Bible story. It's the story. The resurrection of Jesus is the story, and it intersects with your story. It resolves history's greatest mystery— you know, why did the first century church survive at all? And how did Jesus' teaching survive? Because 
he rose from the dead. And it resolves your personal mystery. How do you know where you stand with God and and how does God view you? What does he think of you? Well, we can remember the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, one of those secret disciples on a rooftop one night in John chapter 3. Jesus said to him, for this is how God loved the world. You want to know what God's like? You want to know what God thinks? You want to know how God feels? This, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God has, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. The cross made no sense until the resurrection. The resurrection is why the story of Jesus is told. Because everything up to that point wasn't particularly remarkable. You know, many of the things that Jesus taught had also already been taught by other people. There were other spiritual leaders in that era who claimed to do miracles some of them similar to the miracles that we know Jesus did. There were other men at the time who had claimed to be the Messiah, who had people following them. Many people, many people, hundreds of people had been crucified publicly by the Roman Empire. But Jesus' resurrection makes sense of everything that he did, everything that he taught, everything that he is Everything he'd said, his crucifixion, God's love for the world, Jesus' purpose from the beginning was to die so that you and I could live. The resurrection means he is who he claimed to be, our savior, the one who can guarantee us peace with God. The resurrection is our number one reason to believe. The number one thing that Christians should lean on historically and theologically. It's our number one reason to follow Jesus and his teaching. It's our reason to believe that Jesus is a king worth following. Because no other king would wash people's feet. No other king would prepare a meal for his enemies. No other king would lay down his glory for the least of these. No, no other king would touch people who were diseased. And no other king would put up with mockery or being led to slaughter, refuse to speak, take up a cross and refuse to stay dead to give his life for you and me. The resurrection is why Easter is such a big deal. The end of the story makes the whole story worth telling. The story of a king like no other. And so the question is, what, what do we do with the resurrection? If it resolves the greatest mystery of history about how Jesus' teaching and the church survived, and, it, and if it can resolve our personal mystery of how do we know what God thinks of us and whether we're okay with him, what, what do we do about the resurrection? Can we, could, could you just walk away after knowing that Jesus rose from the dead and just go, cool, 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 But do nothing? If Jesus is a king like no other king, what do you do with that in 2023? If the person of Jesus, who he claimed to be, is really true, that demands a response from you and I. 
Now, the disciple Thomas, who had hit the road when Jesus was arrested, who'd been hiding while he was crucified, wasn't even with the other disciples on Sunday night. And they told him, they're like, hey, we've seen the Lord. And he's like, there's no way I'm believing that. Like, I know you guys, we've been living together for three years and walking all these dusty roads, but there is no way I'm believing you, even though all of you are saying the same thing. I will not believe until I actually see it for myself and I can put my hands on his scars. Then maybe, maybe then I'll believe. And so in John chapter 20, verse 26, eight days later, for eight days, Thomas thought his closest friends were lying to him or deluded. Eight days later, on a Monday night, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked again, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side where Jesus had been stabbed with a spear. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. But blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, none of us in this room today watching online have ever seen Jesus like Thomas did. None of us. We haven't seen him like Thomas did or like the other disciples did or like hundreds of other people did in the 40 days after his resurrection. We haven't. But Jesus said that we would be blessed if we would believe on the basis of their testimony. If we would believe because they saw it and believed it and told us, then we would be blessed. So today, would you be like Thomas and declare Jesus to be your Lord and your God? And sometimes in our life, it, it's, a, it's a massive turning point of realization and, and recognizing Jesus and for the first time trusting in him. And this morning, after the service, I'm going to head down to Gumbura Park where uh, Karen and Natalie and uh, Joshua are being baptized after we have a hot cross bun and a cup of tea. Because for them, this is a, a big turning point moment in their lives. But, it, but if that happened for you before, Maybe years or decades ago, it's still a question that we have to be confronted with today. As I sit here, you know, I, I prepared this message, but I've got to sit here and go, if, if this is true about Jesus, what, what does that mean? What does that mean about the way I live my life and the way I spend my time and the way I spend my money and the kind of language that I use and the way that I treat people and the things that I'm hoping for and the plans I have for my life and, and the things that I really want to do that, that changes everything. If Jesus is a king like no other, and I'm going to put my trust in him as my king, that has to change everything about my life, that I will do anything that he says. So let's pause for a couple of moments this morning. And why don't you ask yourself that question? If Jesus is a king like no other, what are you going to do with that today? I'm going to pray a prayer to Jesus in a moment. 
And if you agree with the things I'm saying, you can just agree in your heart and, and not along. But this prayer is for me. And you could put your own ones, your own prayers and your own words to him. But Jesus, today I, I recognize that you are Israel's final king. You are the Messiah that they've been waiting for for so long. You are the Son of God who came to give up your life for me. And then through the power of the Spirit, picked up your life again and rose to a new body, to new life and appeared to the disciples and to Mary and to Thomas and to hundreds of others. And I want to trust you for my every day. Every decision, everything I do, I want it to revolve around you and be focused on you. And I trust you into eternity as well. When I can't control my life anymore, when my death comes, I trust you that eternal life is found in you as well. In your name today, I pray.